You're going to love this. Just love it. What? Really? You say so. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you, live from Los Angeles, the beautiful studios of Pacifica Radios, KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast and, of course, coast-to-coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, and now on iTunes, where we hope you will give us a five-star rating. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Delighted you could join us for another thrilling adventure in Bradcast history. Uh, Big show, as usual, today for you. And as you know, I I like to, when I can, uh, start the show with some, some good news. Some positive news, uh, if only because everything seems to go to hell thereafter. So today, however, it's not good news I'm starting with. It's it's bad news. It's bad news for fans of the death penalty. Yes, I'm sure fans of the death penalty, people who love big government, people who love the idea of our own government killing our own citizens, you will be disappointed to learn, I'm sure, That uh, out in North Carolina, two men have had their convictions tossed after 30 years in jail on death row before they could be killed by the government. Uh, A North Carolina judge has overturned the convictions of two men who served 30 years in prison for the rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl after another man's DNA was recently discovered on evidence in the case. Superior Court Judge Douglas Sasser ordered the immediate release of Henry McCollum, who is 50, (laughs) been there for 30 years, and Leon Brown, who is 46. The half-brothers were convicted in the 1983 slaying of Sabrina Bowie in Robeson County, North Carolina. Lawyers for the men petitioned for their release after DNA evidence from a cigarette butt recovered at the scene pointed to another man. That man who lived close to the soybean field where the dead girl's body was found is already serving a life sentence for a similar rape and murder that happened less than a month later. Authorities said McCollum, who was 19 at the time, and Brown, who was 15, confessed to killing Bowie. 
Attorneys have said that both men have low IQs and their confessions were coerced after hours of questioning. And, of course, here's the important part. There is no physical evidence connecting them to this crime, to this crime that both men were initially given death sentences for. Those sentences were overturned uh, previously, and at a second trial, McCollum was again sent to death row, where he remains, while Brown was convicted of rape and sentenced to life. Of course, there was no physical evidence, and now there is evidence that someone else was there that night, someone else who was serving a life sentence for rape and murder. Um, Good thing that death penalty didn't get carried out, huh, in the intervening 30 years? So I guess secretly that is good news. Uh, All right. uh, What else do we have on the boards here today? Uh, We will have some breaking news momentarily about today's ruling upholding upholding a marriage equality ban in Louisiana. It's the first such ruling since the Supreme Court uh, 2013 Windsor case. And news about the judge who issued that ruling today. I'll be joined with attorney Ernest Canning momentarily to discuss that and to discuss that uh, judge's background and what Ernie Canning wrote about him back in 2010. Uh, Also, uh, following the closest statewide race in California history, Uh, Out here this summer in the controllers race, uh, California Republicans are now blocking a state bill proposed by Democrats before the November election that would have made stealing elections more difficult. Republicans have now assured that law cannot pass before the November elections. I will explain later in the show. And if I have time, uh, we uh, may have some uh, news about a new study on the effect of Citizens United on our elections and how they are, how that ruling at the Supreme Court is now helping to elect Republicans, Some an academic study on this, uh, and an interesting case of accountability for a police officer in St. Louis County, a police officer who isn't Darren Wilson, the one who shot the unarmed African-American teenager Michael uh, Michael Brown dead in the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, in early August. Uh, also, Desi Doyen and the Green News will be here as usual. Uh, we'll talk about the explosion at an Indiana refinery with a history of explosions. The new U.N. report that warns of irreversible warning. Uh, oh, and uh, some go- and more, including the good news that uh, 22 percent of world electricity is now green. So uh, there's uh, a tiny, a tiny, an itty bitty bit of good news ahead for you uh, as your reward for hanging in there with us. In the meantime, uh, today, a, a federal judge in Louisiana uh, upheld that state's ban on marriage equality. This is the first ruling since Windsor v. U.S. in 2013 at the Supreme Court, the first ruling uh, to find that uh, marriage equality bans are perfectly constitutional. Today's ruling follows an unbroken string uh, of federal decisions, at least until today, in both U.S. district and appellate courts, striking down similar bans in state after state after state since the Windsor decision. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Martin Feldman wrote that the concept of same-sex marriage was, quote, non-existent and even inconceivable 
until very recently. He said the state has a legitimate interest, these are quotes, a legitimate interest in linking children to an intact family formed by their two biological parents. I guess then that would make uh, make it uh, a good idea to ban adoption, <laughs> to ban marriage by people who can't have children, I guess, under that theory, Judge Feldman. Uh, and also he, he uh, wrote that marriages between two individuals of the same sex was based on a, quote, lifestyle choices. <sighs> this judge, Martin Feldman, uh, we wrote about at bradblog.com back in 2010, when Ernest Canning, our uh, legal analyst there, wrote, despite about Feldman, despite having served as a federal judge for 27 years, Judge Feldman is unfit to sit in judgment of others. The only appropriate recourse, Canning wrote at the time, is for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives who takes his or her oath of office seriously to introduce articles of impeachment against Judge Martin Leach Cross Feldman. Uh, Here to explain why he was calling for Judge Feldman, the judge who made this ruling today, why he was calling for Judge Feldman's impeachment back in 2010 is, of course, Ernest Canning, a member, uh, an active member of the California State Bar since 1977. Um, he has uh, received both undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, as well as a Juris Doctor. He is, of course, also most proudly the senior legal a- analyst at bradblog.com. Uh, hey, Ernie, welcome back, sir, to the Bradcast. How are you doing, Brad? I'm doing okay. It's been a long time. Since we had you on the show. Okay, uh, let's see. Back in 2010, you were prescient enough to call for the impeachment of uh, Judge Feldman. You said at the time uh, he was corrupt. He deserved to be thrown out of office to have his his lifetime uh, appointment removed. He was appointed, I think, in uh, 82 or 83 by Ronald Reagan. Uh, He is a close friend of Antonin Scalia, the man who wrote the Windsor uh, uh, dissent uh, for the Supreme Court last year. Uh, Why, at the time, were you calling for uh, Feldman's impeachment? Well, the principal reason and the decision that was at stake in that particular instance had to do with um, a remarkable decision he made uh, to block a six-month moratorium on deepwater offshore drilling, um, uh, which had... The moratorium had been imposed by the Department of Interior, uh, and his his reasoning was that uh, it was inappropriate for for the Department of Interior to assume that since one rig had failed uh, following the BP disaster, that there was an imminent danger that others could fail. And we should say um, that 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 moratorium the federal government put on that was right after the explosion and uh, and the the deaths of eleven uh, workers on that BP rig. Uh, and, and, of course, the months-long uh, <laughs> leak that went on and on that summer, that was the moratorium that this judge then overturned, correct? That's correct. And um, that, you know, just from a substance standpoint, uh, his, his ruling would have been misguided in, in that the, he, he assumed that the burden is on a federal agency that's created to protect public health and safety uh, to prove that drilling is unsafe, as opposed to the burden being on the oil industry to prove that what they're doing is, in fact, safe. But setting that aside, the critical feature in, in the in case was that he not only uh, failed to uh, recuse himself, but failed to disclose to the parties that he had interest 
extensive financial interest in the very uh, companies that were drilling in in the uh, uh, Gulf at the time, and uh, uh, that uh, in, it's it's a bigger problem than just just his. But the way that it came down in in his case was that he. Uh, uh, even went so far as to schedule the hearing, basically arrive at his decision, and then, oh, before I announce my decision, I'm going to dump some of my stock uh, in one of the companies that's going to uh, benefit by this. And he does that on the day that he announces the hearing. And then, um, it, so it was a clear conflict of interest, and under you know the rules of canons of judicial conduct, he clearly violated his oath and uh I think that it should have been regarded as uh, uh, grounds for impeachment. Now, does a judge, uh, does a federal judge, uh, is it optional to recuse themselves in cases where they have a, a conflict of interest? Or was he saying, oh, I don't have a conflict of interest owning uh, stock in these companies that will be affected by my decision? Was he saying that that's not a conflict of interest? I'm perfectly capable of, of uh, uh, deciding this case, uh, even though I stand to make money uh, by doing away with the, the drilling moratorium. Well, he clearly in this with this type of conflict of interest, it is a violation of the canons of judicial ethics to to refuse to recuse himself. The problem I have here isn't that he's claiming he didn't have a conflict of interest, but in fact that he actively concealed that by the manner in which he uh, uh, explained. Uh, he even says, well, on the day of the hearing, I, you know, I, I, I dumped the stock before the hearing. Well, the <laughs> hearing he's talking about dumping the stock is the hearing at which he announced his decision. Prior to that time, knowing that he had the conflict, he went ahead and uh, expedited a hearing on on this heard the thing, already decided what he wanted to do, and then before he announces the decision, he dumps he dumps his uh, par- a part of his holdings, and he still has extensive holdings. So I, it was completely dishonest what he did, and, and that would warrant it. But it goes beyond that, particularly, uh, uh, you know, there's a bigger problem. You say he's Scalia's friend. He's actually uh, uh, connected to the Federalist Society as are Scalia, Thomas, and four of the Supreme Court justices that was founded by Robert Bork and uh, it's funded by such stellar individuals as the Koch brothers uh, and, and uh, is an engaged in an agenda. And you're seeing part of that agenda in the decision that he just handed down uh, of what's really been a counter-revolution in law. In, in that particular circuit, it's interesting uh, that uh, in the Eastern District uh, of Louisiana, where there's, there's so many uh, – uh, uh, judges there that are, they, they hear a lot of litigation over the oil industry, and uh, seven of the 12 judges have uh, cited uh, conflict of interest back then in cases brought by fishermen and other people that because of uh, things regarding uh, 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 deep water and recuse themselves, I have a problem with the judges even, you know, acquiring that kind of financial interest that they have to recuse themselves. And in fact, uh, the L.A. Times had done a story back then that uh, in the Fifth Circuit, uh, a, a case uh, involving Hurricane Katrina victims had been held in limbo because they couldn't even have a a, uh, a quorum within the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal because there were so many judges that uh, had interest, financial interest in the oil industry. And uh, there was another case in which uh, eight of, of 
17 circuit uh, judges uh, uh, stepped down because of financial interest in oil, gas, and chemical companies uh, who are being sued over global warming. So you can see that that this whole thing, you know, it's one thing to have all of these conflicts when you get into the executive and, and legislative branches, and I think you can make a real strong case for there shouldn't be, but it becomes particularly disturbing when you're talking about the judiciary because they're supposed to be impartial. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about the federal judiciary lately uh, and federal judges, uh, particularly in the wake of the last couple of weeks of this other federal judge, Mark Fuller, uh, down in Atlanta, who was actually down in Alabama, I should say, who was arrested, charged with beating his wife. This is the federal judge uh, who sent uh, Alabama, former Alabama Democratic Governor Don Siegelman away to federal prison for six and a half years for something that had never been a crime before. And now it turns out Mark Fuller uh, was arrested beating his wife to a bloody pulp in an Atlanta uh, hotel room. Mark Fuller has a lifetime appointment as a federal judge. He's making $200,000 a year. He's currently trying to avoid prosecution for the case altogether. Uh, But Judge Martin Feldman down in Louisiana, the one who made the decision today, he, too, has a lifetime appointment. I think he's about 80 years old, so I don't know how much longer his life is going to be. But these guys get lifetime appointments. The only way to remove them is uh, by impeachment, by an act of Congress. We have to have a function. Congress to vote to uh, remove a wife beater, uh, if that's the case in Alabama, or to remove a guy like Marty Feldman, Martin Feldman, I should say, in Louisiana. Yeah, don't confuse him him with the other Marty Feldman. Um, Martin Feldman in in, uh, Louisiana, it it takes an act of Congress to remove these people, right? That's the only way they can be uh, tossed out of office. That's true. Um, there have been judges in the past that have been impeached, so it's not you know unheard of that a, that a judge be impeached by Congress. But yeah, essentially that's the only way they they uh, you get them moved from the federal bench. Well, this one wasn't uh, impeached back in 2010 when he should have been. Uh, so he was around to make today's uh, seemingly terrible decision that I suspect will be turned uh, overturned at the Supreme Court next year. We'll find out. Uh, but Ernie Canning, you were right about Martin Feldman uh, back in 2010. And speaking of things that you have long been right about, uh, I want to turn now, uh, because you've been covering a lot of this for Bradblog.com uh, over the past many years, I want to turn now to Texas, where the, um, the case is beginning in the uh, uh, Texas photo ID Uh, voting restrictions trial uh, that the Republicans are now trying to put in place down there. Uh, A couple of quick facts. This trial starts this week. um, And a couple of key facts that the uh, Brennan Center uh, highlighted yesterday. They're working on the case as well. 1.2 million eligible Texas voters lack a form of government-issued photo ID that will be accepted under the new law. More than half a million eligible Hispanic voters and approximately 180,000 eligible black voters lack the type of photo ID that's now required by this Republican law. Uh, Hispanic voters are two and a half times more likely than white voters to lack the accepted uh, ID. Black voters are 1.8 times. That's 180 percent more likely uh, than white voters to lack ID. 
Um, this case, this law is obviously uh, uh, meant for voter suppression. We talk about it on this show all the time. But you, Ernie Canning, uh, you were right about Feldman. Will you be right about photo ID? You have argued that this law in Texas will be struck down and that, in fact, uh, you have argued that the Supreme Court ultimately will find these types of laws unconstitutional. Uh, Why do you believe that in Texas and why do you believe the Supreme Court's going to knock down all of these laws eventually? Well, I I think the decision that was handed down that is is absolutely correct was the 90-page uh, decision in order that uh, Judge Little, Lynn Adelman issued in the Wisconsin uh, photo ID case. Um, Federal and, judge, Lynn Adelman, yeah. yeah. That, exactly. And uh, that, that, by the way, is, is pending in, in, the, uh, in, the, court of, in a, the Circuit Court of Appeal. Uh, there's been appeal by... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by uh, Governor Scott Walker, who, uh, interestingly enough, uh, had sought an emergency basis after his favorable Supreme Court had given him what he wanted in, in the state on that issue uh, to try and get the, the permanent injunction issued in that case uh, uh, stayed uh, so that he could impose uh, photo ID restrictions for the upcoming election. Yeah, it was an emergency, uh, yet they couldn't find, they could the, the, the Republicans could not offer a single case of fraud that would have been stopped by their law, yet it was, it's an emergency. They must get this uh, law in order in place before November when, uh, oh, as it turns out, Scott Walker is up for re-election and in a really, really close battle this November. I think that's the emergency there. Well, well, exactly. There is an emergency, Brad. The emergency is it's a possibility you might get voted out of office. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, but um, the Court of Appeal uh, said, we don't see that as an emergency, and uh, they're just proceeding. Uh, uh, there, there's going to be a hearing on that. If you follow the case law uh, and you follow the Crawford decision, which was issued by the uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2008, uh, the Republicans have made all kinds of representations about Crawford, but the fact is that Crawford doesn't support what they're saying, and in, and in fact. Uh, uh, both the uh, uh, appellate judge and uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and the, the judge who wrote the lead opinion in uh, justice who wrote the lead opinion in Crawford have lamented that they that they even went as far as they did in favor of uh, of uh, upholding. Uh, uh, this is the Supreme Court. ID. Crawford was a Supreme Court decision that allowed uh, a, a one uh, photo ID law to move forward in the state of Indiana. Uh, and the judges uh, have, have now said, oh, we think we got that case wrong. And the justice, uh, Justice Stevens, says he, he thinks he got that wrong. Uh, nonetheless, Republicans are citing that ruling from the Supreme Court to say, well, see, that's why photo ID is perfectly constitutional. It's already been decided. But in fact, it actually hasn't been decided on a constitutional level yet, correct, well, Ernie Kenny? It was Kenny? decided only in the sense that that involved a, a facial challenge to, in other words, that they, you look at it in just the pure concept of photo ID, no, that by itself is not, uh, mm-hmm. is not unconstitutional. But what the court clearly said and what Stevens himself said in the, in the controlling opinion, if you have evidence of a significant burden being imposed, then uh, these laws won't be upheld. And in Texas, uh, the, the difficulties are probably greater than anywhere else. I mean, you have people 
who don't have driver's licenses, who might have to travel as much as uh, as 200 miles one way to the closest, uh, uh, what would be the Texas uh, Department of Motor Vehicles, in order to in order to get the photo ID, and that's assuming you can overcome hurdles like do you have a birth certificate, uh, uh, that sort of thing that you may have to lay out all kinds of money to get. Uh, Ernie, let, uh, me, let me. Oh, okay, good. I was going to say your your phone was breaking up a little bit there, but it sounds okay uh, for the moment. Um, yeah, that case in Texas, aside from people having to drive hundreds of miles, people who don't have a driver's license, by the way, have to drive hundreds of miles to get this so-called free ID if they have the documents, uh, you know, needed to get this free ID. Otherwise, they have to buy those documents. Um, the interesting thing about this case is that it was really already decided by a federal court previously. A federal court previously struck down this very law in Texas back when uh, Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was still in place before it was essentially gutted by the Supreme Court last summer. And as soon as they did that, Texas said, OK, that law that w- you know was already thrown out under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, we're putting it back in. This is the exact same law. Really, nothing has changed other than the fact that uh, under Section 5, the burden was on the state to prove that it was not discriminatory. Now the burden is on the federal government in this case to prove that it is discriminatory, right? That's right. But the other thing that's interesting in that, Brad, um, and you may recall when I wrote the article when, mm-hmm. the, when the government first filed its challenge to the, to the Texas cases, in that earlier decision, while technically it was under Section 5 and it involved a, a unanimous three-judge panel uh, in, um, in, in uh, uh, Washington, D.C., that heard Texas's appeal of the of, uh, of uh, or Texas's challenge to to under Section Five, uh, that decision, the, the language used by the judges there, makes it clear that it would have been struck down by that same court regardless because of the unreasonable burdens it imposed. And that particular court used the same uh, uh, interpretation of um, uh, of uh, the. Um, uh, Crawford decision that has been uh, used by other judges who have struck down photo ID. So um, it, it's uh, it's clear to me that that if if it's decided on the basis of what the law actually uh, entails under either Section Two and under the Fourteenth Amendment, that uh, that the te- uh, of all states, the Texas, uh, the burden is so great in Texas uh, that it essentially uh, Will uh, deprive uh, primarily uh, uh, the you know African Americans, Hispanics, the poor, and people who vote Democratic. And that is what that, that's the case you have essentially laid out now uh, over the years as you've been covering this at Bradblog.com. You've argued that the, the, the law will fail in Texas, that it will be struck down uh, and that it will go all the way to the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court will strike it down. And uh, you're, you're sticking your neck out there. And I know a lot of legal experts uh, do not necessarily agree. They are not necessarily as optimistic as you are, um, but you have been right on uh, pretty much all. All of these uh, cases so far, you were certainly right in the case of Judge uh, Martin Feldman. 
So I do hope you're right here. And let me just toss this in, Ernie, before I let you go. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask, well, why do you cover this stuff so much, Brad? Why do uh, these laws matter? Why does, for that matter, why does voting matter? Why do elections matter? Well, I was reading uh, over the weekend in the Boston Globe, they did a feature article on Mississippi Freedom Summer. Forty years ago, um, I'm sorry, that's 50 years ago now, 1964, a great feature article by Eric Moskowitz. And he pointed out things like in Mississippi, in Panola County, where black people uh, at the time in 1964 made up more than half of the 28,000 residents in that county. Just two black voters had been allowed to register between 1890 and and 1960. Just two. When they used to register, they would have to go to the uh, courthouse, pass a test, all sorts of things. Uh, and, and then they would put their names in the paper as if to, you know, send out a signal to the Klan. Hey, uh, Joe Smith has uh, registered to vote. Go get him. People have fought and died for this right to vote, for this right to even register to vote. Uh, Moskowitz points out that by the end of uh, Freedom Summer, the uh, coalition who was working down there to register voters to try to get them to go to the courthouse to register, you couldn't just sign them up back then. Uh, this was prior to the Voting Rights Act. Uh, they managed to register just 1,600 voters, less than 10 percent of those brave enough to visit courthouses and try and they did it against at least 80 beatings that summer, men done in broad daylight. These kids were beat up for trying to get people to register. Dozens of shootings, more than 60 black church uh, home and business bombings, a thousand flimsy uh, arrests. But there were thousands more instances of harassment and intimidation. This was not that long ago. This was the fight to vote. People have fought and died for this right, and I will be damned if I'm going to sit here on my watch and let these liars come out on the Republican side and say, oh, this is about election integrity. It is not. It is about suppressing the vote. And I'm going to keep talking about it, and I'm going to keep calling out these jerks uh, until, hopefully, Ernie Canning, you are right, and the Supreme Court ends this nightmare once and for all uh, and, and allows... <laughs> Americans to vote again. Uh, sorry about that rant, Ernie. Let, let, me, uh, yeah, go ahead. let me just add a, a brief thought to yeah. what you, you just said with regard to the importance of the right to vote and why I think it's so important that people really start looking at, hey, you know, if you have the opportunity, you should take part in the electoral process. Um, you just look at uh, Ferguson, Missouri. And you wonder, would events have come down there if the African-American population in, in Ferguson had actually taken the vote seriously? The interesting thing is that a number of Republicans seem to be upset with the fact that a number of groups are saying, look, if you want to remedy what's going on here in Ferguson, uh, get out and register to vote and, and change because – they're the majority, and yet you have an almost all-white city council and mayor and, 
and and police force, you yep. know, uh, do something about it. You know, you're absolutely right. Elections uh, do matter, and uh, you know, we we have an incredibly corrupt system. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying either of the two major parties are any good, but I'm saying if we have a chance of changing this system, uh, it will be uh, at the ballot box. At least it should be at the ballot box. Ernie Canning, uh, attorney, senior legal uh, advisor and author at bradblog.com. It's always great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, You were right all along. I hope you continue to be right. Thanks a bunch, Ernie. I hope so, too. Thanks, Brad. Right, right. You're bloody well right. You got a bloody right to say. Right. You're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. All right. Yeah. Okay, maybe I'm not right. Let me know. Uh, we'll see if we have a moment or two for a call or two. 818-985-5735 is our phone number. If I ain't getting something right and you want to tell me about it, 818-985-KPFK. Uh, more election news ahead. Maybe some Ferguson news ahead. Of course, the Green News Report. All of that ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly blogger from bradblog.com. You know, yeah, speaking of, oh, our phone number, 818-985-5735. If you'd like to jump in on anything we're talking about today, 818-985-KPFK. Love to hear from you. Um, You know, this is all about uh, these voting restrictions. This is, you know, peel away enough voters, peel away just enough percent to make a difference. It doesn't take a lot. Most uh, many elections are, you know, within uh, two to three percentage points. Just peel away a few. That's what this is about. That's what it's about in Texas. Where this law, this Republican photo ID law is being passed, where it, or where it's where they're fighting for it, where it's on trial this week, where Scott Walker up in Wisconsin is fighting uh, to overturn uh, the, the federal judge who, who struck down their photo ID law. Same thing out in North Carolina, where this monster uh, voter suppression law was passed by Republicans with no debate, no public debate. Uh, will end early voting, uh, early registration, you know, all kinds of things. It, it, there is an important Senate race in North Carolina. That's what these laws are about. Just peel away enough voters to make the difference. Well, a, uh, a new report out called The Business of American Democracy, Citizens United, Independent Spending and Elections. Um 
finds that since Supreme, since uh, the Citizens United case in 2010, that law has redounded to the benefit of Republicans. According to Reed Wilson in the uh, Washington Post this week, the 2010 Supreme Court decision helped usher in a new era of political spending uh, and gave Republicans a measurable advantage on Election Day, according to this new study. The advantage isn't large, but it is statistically significant, the researchers found. They found that the ruling in Citizens United was associated with a six percentage point increase in the likelihood that a Republican candidate would win a state legislative race. And in six of the most affected states, Michigan, Minnesota, Montana, North Carolina, Ohio and Tennessee, the probability that a Republican would be elected to a state legislative seat increased by 10 percentage points or more. In five other states, Colorado, Iowa, Texas, Wisconsin, and Wyoming, Republican candidates were seven percentage points more likely to win. So how did they figure this out? Not just, you know, the amount of money coming in, but the study was able to focus on 22 states where bans on independent expenditures by corporations and labor unions were overturned by the Supreme Court ruling. And in the remaining 28 states, which had never had bans on independent expenditures, Those served as control states. So you could see that in the states where the bans were done away with, thanks to Citizens United, there was this increase in uh, uh, Republican uh, office holders, Republicans winning elections that did not occur in those other states. The researchers also found uh, evidence that the ruling led to an increase in the number of Republicans who ran for election and a decrease in the number of Democrats who ran Uh, One Democratic candidate dropped out of about every uh, 10th race in states that were affected by Citizens United. So if you can't win elections by having better positions, by having better policies, then win elections by dirty tricks. And that's apparently what Republicans are doing any way they can, any laws they can institute to keep people from voting at all. That's what they're trying to do. And they're succeeding. And they're succeeding. Uh, Gerrymandering districts, of course, there was a a million and a half more Democrats uh, voted for Democratic Congress people in 2012. And yet, somehow, the Republicans still have the majority in the U.S. House. Game the system. That's what it's about. And I don't care how corrupt you think that uh, Democrats may be as well. And they very well may be. But when it comes to how we are going to have change in this country, it is going to be at the ballot box. At least I prefer it be at the ballot box. Uh, Okay, Uh, 818-985-5735 is our number. 818-985-KPFK. Let me go to uh, Don in Newport Beach. Hey, Don, welcome to the broadcast. What's up? Brad, first, thanks for your hard work. Very much appreciated. Thank you, sir. Uh, I'm wondering, in the environment of an appeal, who's going to develop the points of law that will eventually back and overturn this syndrome at the Supreme Court? Well, you know, I I don't know what turns uh, changes things at the Supreme Court other than, again, elections. And I keep, you know, I bring this up every time. Every time there's a a terrible decision at the Supreme Court, like a Citizens United, 
I have to remind people to say, oh, thank you, John Kerry. Thank you, John Kerry, for not fighting for your goddamn election in 2004 in Ohio. Because that's how uh, we have that's why we have Alito. That's why we have Roberts, because John Kerry refused to fight to make sure that the votes actually got counted in Ohio in 2004. And by the way, they didn't. So we're paying that price. Elections make the difference when it comes to the Supreme Court. I guess you're going to have to wait for people to die off, uh, you know, before things really change. But if those people die off and you've got a Republican in the White House because the Democrat refused to make sure that everybody got their vote counted, then what difference does it make? So anyway. I don't disagree with where you think we are. I'm just wondering, eventually, there's going to be an appeal that will make it past federal court and will be heard at the Supreme Court yeah. that could overturn the syndrome. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, who will develop those points of law from our side? Okay, you're specifically talking about the uh, the, the photo ID uh, polling restriction, voting uh, restrictions? Is that the, one, the cases I you're talking about? I yeah. think that's the closest okay. to the finish line, Brad. Would yeah. you agree? Oh, yeah. And and uh, Ernie Canning, who we were just speaking to, did a great article on this at bradblog.com. Go go out there and, and look up uh, Ernie Canning and Crawford uh, at bradblog.com because he argues that, in fact, uh, the Crawford uh, case— does not do what the Republicans are claiming that it does. And these cases, the Texas case and the Wisconsin case and the North Carolina case, uh, are likely all or one of them going to end up at the Supreme Court. And Ernie already explains why the argument that is being made by Republicans uh, in support of these laws is not supported uh, in the previous Crawford decision and why these laws will not stand up to uh, constitutional scrutiny. So uh, I understand his, yeah. his position is tremendously optimistic, and uh, I, hold, I hold the same optimism. Brad, thanks for your hard work. I'll get off the line. Uh, thanks, Don. And it's not just optimist. It's based on, on law. I mean, he's, he's following uh, both the Constitution and the rule of law, the court cases, the decisions that have been made. And he lays out exactly why, uh, even if some of these appellate courts uh, uphold these laws, why it will not uh, withstand constitutional scrutiny. Uh, but he does that better than I. So check that out at bradblog.com. Uh, OK, before we get to the green news, let me see if I have time for this here, because this is kind of uh, fun. <laughs> I put that in quotes uh, <laughs> uh, earlier this summer out here in California, uh, the statewide primary election for controller. Uh, was the closest race in history in California, in statewide history. It was decided by just 481 votes out of more than 4 million ballots cast. Paper ballots out in California we use, for the most part currently, hand-marked paper ballots. They can be counted. Instead, we run them through computer op scan, optical scanners, which either count them correctly or don't. We don't know. You can't know unless you actually count them. Well, in this case, you got a, a, a race with more than 4 million uh, votes cast. Just 481 votes separate two Democrats in the primary. Now, the way we now run primaries out here in California, we run the top two primary, which means that the everyone runs in one primary. The top two vote getters, regardless of party, end up going to the uh, 
uh, to the November to the general election. Well, in this case, the Republican uh, was clearly in first place. Republican Ashley Swearingen running for controller. That's the chief financial officer out here in California. Got a lot of power. This job. Uh, even though it's sort of a down ticket race, people don't really know what the controller does. OK, so the Republican uh, gets first place. But second place is a battle between a former assembly speaker, John Perez, well-funded uh, former assembly speaker, John Perez and Betty Yee, both Democrats. In the end, Betty Yee wins by 481 votes under the uh, certified results. So naturally, John Perez would like a recount. California, however, does not pay for a recount, does not offer a recount, an automated recount in a, in a case like this where the margin was less than one one hundredth of a percent. So if Perez wants a recount, he's got to pay for it. He's got to pay for it in California, in this huge state of California, uh, which can cost millions of dollars. Uh, in no small part because in county after county, as Bradblog.com has reported almost exclusively now for many years, in county after county, uh, election clerks, the county registrar, can determine what the cost will be to count the ballots. They can come up with pretty much any price they want, any cost they want, and the person requesting the count has to pay that money in advance each day of the count. It can get incredibly costly, uh, and especially when we're talking about a, uh, you know, a statewide election. Well, here you had John Perez, who tried to count for about a week in two different counties. We have, uh, what is it, 58 of them out here in California. He tried to count in two different counties. Uh, there weren't a lot of changes in the votes. And he realized that the time it was going to take to go county by county by county and the money that it would take to go county by county by county uh, may or may not uh, yield a change in the results, in which case he would get his money back. But it would certainly go longer uh, than was required to print up the November ballots. So the wrong person may have ended up on the November ballot in the general election for controller. Anyway, it's ridiculous. Many states will have an automated uh, recount if, if the margin is less than 1% uh, or if it's, you know, 0.5, less than 0.5%. Uh, many states will, you know, have an automatic recount will kick in that doesn't have to be paid for by the uh, by the candidate as it was in this case. Now, he had a really well-funded candidate, John Perez, but he could not afford the millions of dollars to count this race. It, it revealed this huge flaw, a number of huge flaws in California's uh, electoral system. And when John Perez called off his uh, his hand count, his post-election hand count, uh, I wrote at Bradblog.com that it would be a great time to steal an election in California because what is clear is that most candidates cannot afford to recount an election and the state will not pay for it. It's a roadmap for how to steal an election. Just have a really close uh, election, game it, game the system so the, uh, the computers uh, return really, uh, you know, close numbers. And then wait for them to not be able to afford to count those ballots. Yes, we have paper ballots. Yes, people argue that, well, we got paper ballots. We can go back and count them in a close election. We could not go back and count them in the closest election in California history. 
at least we didn't bother to go back and count them. So uh, Democrat uh, Assemblyman Kevin Mullen proposed an emergency bill before the end of the session uh, that would uh, kick in before November. And it would, in the case of a really, really, really close race, less than one-tenth of a percentage point, it would have the state pay for the count, state, uh, pay for a, uh, a, a recount, post-election recount, so it, the burden wouldn't fall to a candidate. Uh, a reasonable bill, incredibly conservative bill. It would have only applied through July 2015. It would have only applied to statewide races. It would have only applied in races that were point uh, oh, what is it? Point oh one, a tenth of a percent, uh, point one actually, a tenth of a percent uh, or less, if the margin was. Well, at this late date, before the legislative session ended on uh, on Labor Day weekend. Uh, you had to have two-thirds of a majority to uh, pass this bill through to a committee. The Republicans blocked it. They would not even allow this conservative bill to go through that would have only kicked in uh, for the upcoming November election. The Republicans blocked it. For some reason, they are just fine with the fact that it is Uh, much easier for the moment to steal an election in California if you'd like to get away with it. State Republicans blocking the Democrats. By the way, when this comes back next session, as uh, Assemblyman Kevin Mullen says, promises that it will, uh, it will only take a majority vote uh, to, to pass it this time. And I hope it's a more complete bill, and I hope it finally puts some limits on the costs that uh, registrars can charge voters and candidates for recounts. Because right now, they can charge anything they want, and they don't have to even uh, let you know what those costs are going to be in advance of an election. They can do it after the election when someone requests the count, and in fact... uh, Exorbitant pricing of recounts by registrars has blocked all kinds of uh, recounts in prop- statewide propositions, mayoral races, congressional races, and more. Uh, come on, California, clean up your act and uh, don't let the Republicans stop you. Let's do some green news. Stopping the world, stopping the broadcast, and melting for Desi Doyen. Hey, Desi. Hey. The uh, hottest summer in, uh, I think, on record continues out here. Yes, it's still hot. It's true. It is still hot. Still record hot. (laughs) Record all time hot, all time dry. uh, very quickly, uh, we, we did not do, uh, we usually do two Green News reports a week, which people can download at their leisure anytime at uh, iTunes or at Brad Blog or, or Stitcher. Stitcher, tune in, any other uh, places. Um, so we did not uh, do our first one this week because of the holiday. So what we have here is late last week's Green News report. Yes. That was uh, just before Labor Day. Just want to yes. let people know it's uh, slightly out of date by. Oh, a day or two. Right? <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, G, our latest, uh, kick it, our latest Green News report. An explosion and fire rocked the BP oil refinery in Whiting last night. Explosion at an Indiana refinery with a history of exploding. We really need to 
get working on this problem now. UN reports stark warning the window is closing to stop irreversible global warming. Million-dollar fines for oil and chemical spills. Renewable energy now producing 22% of the world's electricity. Plus... In September, the world's leaders are going to come to the United Nations for the largest ever summit on climate change. And we're going to meet them with the largest mobilization in history. Get ready for the People's Climate March on September 21st. All of those marches and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Setting aside the historical authenticity of ISIS methods, here's a question for you, guys who want to establish their own state. Oh, you captured some oil wells? Great. Now you got to build a bureaucracy to pump that oil, refine it. And what if there's a spill? You think you're radical and determined? Have you met environmentalists? Oh, boy, howdy have I. This is your... Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, more fossil fuel explosions leading our report this week? Oh, yeah, another explosion and fire Wednesday night at a BP tar sands refinery in Whiting, Indiana. It was pretty loud, and uh, I, for me being in front of the house, I heard my windows shaking, and it's about a mile and a half from here. It sent one worker to the hospital and just happened to occur 59 years to the day after several explosions at that same refinery killed two people back in 1955, one of the worst industrial disasters in Indiana history. Luckily, no one died this week. And in March of this year, that same BP refinery in Indiana dumped 1,600 gallons of oil into Lake Michigan. Man, those BP guys stay busy, don't they? They certainly do. In other oil spill news, the Environmental Protection Agency says ExxonMobil has agreed to pay $1.4 million to settle fines from a crude oil pipeline spill that dumped over 100,000 gallons of oil into northern Louisiana waterways back in 2012. Oh boy, 1.4 million. That will take them seconds to recoup. And the EPA also announced this week that DuPont Chemical has agreed to pay nearly $1.3 million in fines for a series of toxic chemical leaks in West Virginia four years ago, including one that killed a worker. So once again, the moral here, all this crime is well worth it to these big companies. Global warming is already here, fueling extreme weather. Some impacts are inevitable, and if we don't act quickly to cut carbon emissions, some impacts will be irreversible. That's the stark warning in the newest report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in a leaked draft obtained by the Associated Press. It's the most blunt assessment yet, says climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann. We really need to act now if we are going to protect ourselves against what can reasonably be described as truly dangerous and potentially irreversible changes in our climate. That leaked final draft is a summary, the synthesis of the IPCC's three previous reports this year on the scientific evidence, the impacts of global warming, and the solutions. Shockingly blunt, this summary baldly warns that continued emissions of greenhouse gases will, quote, cause further warming, long-lasting changes in all components of the climate system, increasing the likelihood of severe, pervasive, and irreversible irreversible impacts for people and ecosystems. But as Dr. Mann says in an interview with therealnews.com, this UN draft also makes clear cutting emissions now is cheaper than paying later. It is still relatively inexpensive to solve this problem. If we act now, then we can stabilize global warming below levels that are truly 
dangerous and potentially irreversible. Can I just keep watching Fox News and pretend everything you just said isn't actually happening? Apparently a lot of people do, but it doesn't change the scientific facts. And the International Energy Agency finds that renewable energy grew this year globally at the fastest pace ever recorded, now producing 22% of the world's electricity. That's weird. I didn't see that on Fox News either. And you also didn't see this on Fox News. Banking giant UBS, the largest privately owned bank in the world, says homeowner-generated renewable energy could be cheaper than fossil fuels as early as 2020, at least for people in Europe. That's because they are a left-wing... Wait, what are they again? The world's largest private bank. Oh, never mind. Speaking of action on climate change, the largest public march to demand action is just a few weeks away. The People's Climate March on September 21st in New York City will also have rallies around the world, and it coincides with the special United Nations Climate Summit in New York on September 23rd, says Evaz.org Executive Director Rickon Patel. The People's Climate March will kick off an 18-month battle, literally to save the world. Oh, we're going to have a lot of stories coming up about people getting around in New York City, aren't we? Yep. Just guessing. See you in September. For much more on that story and all of the ones we couldn't get to today, please, as always, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Happy September, Desi Indeed, we are in September and coming up on the next episode of the Green News Report. We're going to talk about the big fine for Pacific Gas and Electric for blowing up all those people in San Bruno. Sounds like a lot of money until you look at the details. Yeah, well, a billion dollars. That's better than a million dollars. But, yeah, it may not be so big after all. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. And, uh, oh, the uh, momentary return of super-duper producer... Associate producer, Margo Paez. Hi, Margo. Uh, my thanks to G, our soundboard operator, and my guest, Ernie a- Ernest A. Canning, who you can find, of course, at bradblog.com. Until uh, next time, you can find me on the Twitters at bradblog, and of course, no, the Twitters at the bradblog, and of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, world.